Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, uh, if you know me at all, then hopefully you caught the word therefore in those first four words of this verse, and so you know that we've got to go back a little bit, right, and see what Paul has laid out previously before he's gotten to this passage. So just, uh, you might even still be on the same page you're looking at in Romans, but look back at Romans 11. We'll start in verse 33, and we'll read through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Church, what an amazing passage we have here in Romans 11. These few verses declare so many foundational truths about God. And if we don't consider them rightly, we don't don't consider this foundation that Paul laid out, then I'm afraid we won't rightly apply verse 1 and 2 of Romans 12. So what I want to do before we really dive into the meat of our time together, I want to just break this uh, small section of Scripture down briefly for our consideration. Oh, the depth and the riches of God's knowledge. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Church, God's judgments are perfect. No one can search them out to find fault. No one is capable of being God's judge. God's ways are inscrutable. They are perfect and without any error. God does not make a mistake. No one can know exhaustively what God knows or why God does what he does. No one knows the mind of the Lord. Again, um, to be clear, this is in an ultimate exhaustive sense, right? Uh, We can know what the all-knowing God reveals to us in his creation and in his word. However, beyond that, we are simply limited, and we cannot know or pass judgments about what God does or the ways that God declares things to be. Church God is the only omniscient being that exists. There is nothing he does not know. Now, I've said this before, but as I find comfort and joy in reminding myself of this reality, it bears repeating for you. If you had the exhaustive knowledge of God, you would never ask for anything other than what God has given you. God declares in Romans chapter 8 that all things, even suffering, are being worked out for your good, for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. He takes every aspect of the life you know if you are saved, and he has used that for your good. Consider this, church. Who has been God's counselor? Who has given advice to God that he might follow it as if God should be in any kind of need, if God should lack any kind of wisdom? These are, of course, rhetorical questions. Uh, Who has given something to God that would put God into their debt? The obvious answer is no one. Even though as believers we know this to be true, we are often tempted, aren't we, in our hearts, to question God's judgments or to forget these truths. God, why have you set it up this way, right? That's why I love the song we sang before the sermon, uh, Where Were You? Such a great song, such a sweet reminder from Job. Church, this passage in Romans 11 declares that no one is wiser than God. 
No one gets to judge God, for no one knows God's thoughts and ways exhaustively. And finally, it declares that no one can put God into their debt. God does not owe anyone anything. After declaring what we cannot do or know in regards to God, the passage goes on to declare that we all, every one of us, owe God our lives. Now, this is not simply a claim to Christians that we owe God our lives. It is a claim to all people and all things everywhere. Everything that is created was created by God, was created for God, and was created unto God for his glory. We were created through him and for him and to him. And even if you deny God who created you, you will one day bow the knee to him as Lord. For from him and to him and through him are all things. Therefore, church. Well, therefore, we get to see what God declares through Paul in our main passage this morning. Now, as we dig into this passage, do not forget what these previous verses declare. Don't don't forget the foundation behind the plea and the charge that Paul is going to give to us believers. Don't forget that we owe everything to God, including our lives, every uh, feeble beat of our hearts. They are belonging to him. He's created it. He sustains it. So let's look again at our main passage, Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There are two main points that I want us to consider from our passage today. Our first point, I want us to understand what our spiritual worship is. Uh, So I've titled that, What is Our Spiritual Worship? And then our second point, I want us to see how we do godly transformation. So um, the second point is godly transformation. So again, spiritual worship, first point, godly transformation, point point two. Uh, So let's look at verse one and let's break that down as we consider what spiritual worship is. Romans 12, verse one. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, before we can consider what our spiritual worship is, we must pay particular attention to the terms that Paul uses as he begins this appeal. Paul appeals to the brothers by the mercies of God. When Paul says this, uh, especially after previous part of his letter, um, where Paul explains how vastly above all things God is and how everything belongs to God, he aims to narrow now the scope of the audience here to those who are believers. Paul uses an affectionate term that is designated for fellow believers. He makes sure to draw this clarity by saying that in light of God's mercies, here is what we ought to do. You see, God's mercies are only fully applied to his beloved, his elect. God's mercies are fully applied to those for whom Christ died, all whom God would save and redeem. God does display a common grace to the world as he causes the sun to rise on the wicked and on the just, but the fullness of his mercies are reserved for those whom he has saved. So Paul is speaking to believers And he appeals to them to live their lives sacrificially. Now notice that Paul is not commanding this with terms that show a punishment for a failure to obey. He's not rebuking fellow believers for having not done this, right? He's not frustrated. He is rather graciously appealing to believers to consider the mercies of God in their life. And with those mercies as a foundation and a motivation, he pleads then with us to live our lives for God's glory. 
Now, he uses the, the specific language of body here. And, and I realized when I was studying through this that that might, that might come off confusing. When Paul says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, he does not simply mean to sacrifice your physical body, right? The, the focus isn't just on physical, like, body sacrifice, right? Uh, otherwise, he wouldn't call it a living sacrifice. If you're sacrificing your physical body, it's no longer living, right? Um, so he, he doesn't mean to simply sacrifice something physical. Actually, what, what he's saying is that all of who you are should be lived out as a sacrifice to the God who has created and saved you. To be clear, it may be a part of God's plan for your life that you would be called to lay down your physical life for God's glory. However, the focus of our physical body is not what Paul intends for us to have here. Uh, Let me say it this way. Paul is not simply saying to physically give up your body as a sacrifice. There is so much more in this passage that's being declared. Paul says that the type of sacrifice that he is pleading for us to have is a living one, and it's spiritual, and it's worship. So you begin to see all of the faculties that make us humans, made in God's image, is what Paul is calling us to make a living sacrifice of. What Paul is really saying is that you and I who have been saved by God must give our entire lives, all of who we are, as a sacrifice to the God who saved us. When Paul says body, he means mind, body, and soul. Paul is referring to all that you are. And this is why it is our spiritual worship. Uh, It involves our physical bodies, It involves our minds, it involves our our hearts, our emotions, it involves our soul. We are commanded to lay all of ourselves down at the altar of God as a sacrifice and to remember that we are doing this based upon the mercies and the magnificence of our God. So, I can't encourage you enough, church, do not hear this plea without remembering all that came before it, namely God's magnificence, his holiness, the perfection of his judgments and his ways, and that everything is owed to him. His mercy to take a dead in sin, rebellious soul and trade the life of Jesus for it. That's what motivates us to obey here. Now notice the passage adds the clarity. We are called to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So there's clearly a way that we can do this where it wouldn't be acceptable and, and it wouldn't be a striving for our holiness. What I really like is the, the Young's literal translation says it in a way that seems a little more um, understandable. Romans 12.1, Young's Literal Translation. I call upon you, therefore, brethren, through the compassions of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, sanctified, acceptable to God, your intelligent service. You see, the way in which you present your body, your, your whole being, as a living sacrifice is through a life of sanctification. Sanctification is the process in which God causes you to grow in your maturity as you obediently strive to become more and more like Christ. This is an increasing in holiness, and it is a work that God primarily does, but that he calls us to do along with him. We see this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. We're going to start at the end of verse 12. It states, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, this working out of your salvation is not, it is not a working unto your salvation. Rather, it is a working out of your salvation. It is a growing in sanctification Because you have been saved, it is not a work you do to be saved. Does that make sense? I want to be really clear there. Uh, Maybe it'll help to say it this way. Since God saved you already, 
Now join him by working out your salvation to mature yourself in Christ. Because God is still at work in you. Your salvation was not a one-time work of God. In fact, after salvation, that work of God continues and you grow in maturity, obedience to your Lord. So this is something that we do and something that God is doing in us. Again, always remember that he's that primary mover, right? Paul says that we ought to be at work because God is at work and he's at work for his good pleasure. Paul says we ought to take it very seriously. We ought to be at work with fear and trembling. I typically say it this way. If the boss is on the job site and the boss is working, you, the employee, had better be at work, right? Most of the time when the boss is on the job site, the employee's work increases because the boss is there. Well, if the boss is picking up the shovel and digging too, you better have one more shovel scoop ahead of him, right? Christian, are you guilty of enjoying God's grace, seeing that he gave you eyes to see your sin and to repent and to trust in Christ, but now that you have been made right with God, you're simply okay to go on never really growing and maturing, never serving or sacrificing your desires to live for God. Are you guilty of enjoying Christ as Savior and content with salvation, but not honoring Christ as Lord? If that is you, perhaps you have believed something that this world has sold you instead of being transformed by God's word and the renewal of your mind. Now, we'll get to that in my second point this morning, but uh, I wanted to slow down here and really share a, a, a heartfelt desire for our church family and for some of my hope in this new role and season of life. I've long desired to meet the qualification of elder so that I may carry the burden with other men that God has qualified so that in any way possible I may be a useful tool in the service to God and to our church. Ever since God began to really grow in me an understanding of Scripture and, and what he has done for me in, in my salvation, I've longed and desired to help those who profess Christ to rightly know God and how he has saved them and what his word declares. You see, the blessing of God in my life through the sanctifying work of God has been overwhelmingly precious to me. And out of this, I long to see other men and women who profess Christ as their Lord and Savior enjoy this sweetness. I long for them to see the, the, the beauty of that sanctification in their lives. I've longed for my own family to grow in understanding who God is and to taste the joy of repentance and maturity and living for God. Church, this is a deep desire for me as one of your shepherds. I long to see mature men and women helping other believers become more mature men and women in Christ and in God's word. This is something that all of your leaders and elders desire for you here. We aim to walk with you to, to help you grow in these things. A pastor that really blessed me in my early stages of sanctification said this one time, and it um, really resonated with me, uh, having grown up in the church all of my life. He said that he was far more concerned for people who thought they were Christians but were headed for hell than he was for those who had never professed Christ as Lord to begin with. And that really stood out. Uh, I had been raised in church all my life, but I did not know the, the, the riches of God's word. I didn't even rightly understand how he had saved me. And so I long for lost sinners to be saved, but I have a more pressing desire to see those who think they know Christ truly know him. I long for the people of our church to grow in the fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we long to see lives transformed by the gospel, and it is our desire as elders to press this forward. It is my desire for you, Christian, that you would grow and mature, and that you too would be a useful tool in service to God for the good of others, for your joy, and most importantly, for God's 
glory. Christian, this is your spiritual worship. Your spiritual worship is seen in a very real way through your sanctification and growth in the Lord. How fitting that we are going to beginning we are going to be beginning our midweek series with teaching through the spiritual disciplines and that we're going to continue teaching through the fruit of the spirit. These are the things that we as Christians are called to grow in, right? Scripture declares that these are the things that reveal to the world around us that our faith is genuine. Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45. Jesus is speaking here to his disciples. He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. Christians, we are known by our fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. What we've got to see here, Christian, is that a tree is known by its fruit. Um, What that means is that you and I do not have the ability to discern someone's heart. All we can do is discern what we see in their lives. Jesus knows this. Jesus has the ability to discern the heart, but he tells his disciples, you will know when people are genuine by the fruit that they produce. We are called to do this, to grow and strive to grow fruit because of God's mercy which means we have been saved by God already or else we could not produce good fruit. Let me say that another way. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Christ made that clear in this passage. Therefore, if God has not given you faith, you cannot produce good fruit. This teaching of Jesus is for believers. A good tree, a believer, bears good fruit, grows in sanctification. Prior to salvation, every believer in here could not bear good fruit. Apart from faith, we cannot please God. Now, since you and I cannot see the heart of man, again, we must see their life and hear their testimony. And if these two things line up, then we can be confident in their profession. However, if these two do not line up, then we must, out of love for each other, be concerned and be willing to do the hard work of exhorting one another so that each other grows in maturity. Now, this is a sweet gift and a command from God to us as believers. It is a way in which God graciously uses the beloved blood-bought family to draw a believer out of sin and back into sanctification. This is not easy to do, but it is so, so good for us, church. Ultimately, our spiritual worship is us living out our lives with the desire to grow and be sanctified in God's word, to become more and more like Christ. So we've looked at what Paul is calling us to do. Now in our next verse, what we're going to see is, is how we do that. So Paul said, live your life, all that you are, as a sacrifice to God based upon his mercies. Then he says, Here's how. Here's how we do this. Uh, This is point two, or godly transformation. Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Christian, you grow in sanctification through the transformation of your thoughts as they see and savor God's truth, which is given to us in his scripture. For those of you who are with us through the Ephesians series, Paul spent an entire chapter, or maybe even a little more, commanding believers to put off the old self and to put on Christ, or the new self. This means that as believers, we are to put away old thoughts, uh, worldly thoughts, worldly desires, and we are to put on 
Christ. We are to study God's word, see what his will is, and to think his thoughts after him. You see, when God caused you to be born again, he saved you. He renewed your mind at regeneration, but he calls us to a continual process of renewing our mind by the truth of his word. Let me unpack that just just a little bit. In your new birth, God granted you saving faith. He gave you eyes to see and ears to hear his gospel as truth. And this new birth, being born again, is also the work of God, and it is the beginning of the new person in Christ. Because of regeneration or new birth, because God caused you to be born again, you are now able to see God's truth and believe him. You trust in God and the work done on your behalf by Jesus at the cross. This new birth transformation is all God's doing. Uh, Just like you had no uh, hand in your first birth, you have no hand in your new birth. Apart from this new birth, as I explained in my first point this morning, you could not honor this plea that God is making to us through Paul in verse 1. So when we consider the call to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, this is not referring to the new birth renewal that has already happened. Rather, this is referring to the ongoing work for us as believers to bring our thoughts and our desires in submission, in line with God's word and his will. We do this through the study of God's word. I didn't say this first service, but church, if you aren't reading the word of God, then you won't be able to do this. God has revealed himself in two ways. He's revealed himself in general revelation, which is his creation and the world around us, and his special revelation, which is now his word, the scriptures. We can learn things from general revelation, but this revelation is not enough for us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. For this work, we need, we are desperate for, we must go to the word of God. You see, Christian, in order to be sanctified, to grow in Christ, in order to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, we need to be in the word. We need to see and savor God's word, and we need to believe that it is truth as he declares it to be. We see this in Jesus' high priestly prayer found in John chapter 17, uh, probably my favorite chapter in all of Scripture, John 17, verses 16 through 19. Jesus is praying to the Father, uh, and he's praying for his people, and he says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. See this church as Christ declaring part of the work that he did was so that we could be sanctified in truth. In his prayer for his people, Jesus declares that sanctification happens in truth And he declares that that truth is God's word. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And this is really where we see the how-to part uh, that comes out of verse 2 for verse 1. So verse 1 says, live your life sacrificially. Do it in a way that's pleasing to God. And verse 2 says, here's how that works, right? Romans 12, 2, verse, uh, sorry, verse 2, the first part. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You see, it is a most unfortunate thing to see those who profess Christ as Lord and Savior still hold on to beliefs that are simply not biblical. Um, All you have to do is turn on Facebook and scroll through for a while. I I believe that they are definitely well-meaning in many posts, But many times you'll see a Christian posting something that simply isn't biblical, right? When we do this, we stunt our growth. We slow down our sanctification. 
When we are conformed to this world, we will fail to grow in sanctification and an honoring of God to whom we owe everything. So we must regularly practice taking our thoughts, our beliefs, to the word of God and seeing if we are in line with God's word. And when we are not in line with God's word, then we must not be conformed to this world. We must not try and make God's word fit our thoughts, right? We must not keep those false beliefs. Rather, we must apply God's truth to our mind and be transformed in the way that we think, which will also transform the way that we live. We see this all throughout Scripture. Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. These two passages are saying very similar things. We must not be conformed to the world's way of thinking and believing things to be. We must not adopt a worldview that does not line up with God's word. As Christians, we must have a biblical worldview steeped in the truth of God's word. Our thoughts must line up with the word of God and what he has declared to be true. Now, let's see all of those pieces put together in our passage again. Romans 12, verse 2, the whole verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but by the renewal of your mind, sorry, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Church, We know what the will of God is by the word of God. We are not to take up or be conformed to the thoughts of the world around us. For example, the world's take on safety being the most important thing to mankind has completely uprooted life as we've known it. And I fear that we will see the destruction that this will cause for generations to come. My children's grandchildren will be affected by this unbiblical view. The view that safety and avoiding illness or even possibly death, heaven forbid, at at all costs, even the cost of disobeying the God who made you, is not a biblical worldview. Consider these two passages this morning, one from the book of Psalms and one from Job. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Job 14.5. Since his days are determined, and the number of his months is with you, And you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Christian, we are called to be good stewards of the life God has given us. And we ought to do that. But we are not called to make safety and health the God of our lives. We are not commanded by God to avoid all others for the sake of your safety or their safety. Instead, we are called to do life together to make wise decisions indeed, and to know that you and I will not live one second longer or shorter than God has ordained. Our days are numbered. So when we see the world promoting a view that declares you must be totally isolated from others, safety and health and life are the greatest thing for you to treasure. Well, we take this view and we lay it against the word of God. This is how we test and discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. What I want to do with the rest of my time in this particular point is I want to just share some very practical ways that we as Christians tend to hold on to bad worldviews. Um, I, I want to cushion our entry into that. 
I want to do this not to cause you to be disheartened or frustrated. I don't want you to consider these practical illustrations and be discouraged. Uh, That's not my aim for this. Rather, I, I want you to hear them, and I want you to just slow down and consider what areas of your life, especially your thoughts and, and beliefs, what areas do you need to take to the Word of God and be transformed in? Again, before I address some of these, I, I know that they may be sensitive, and I, I hope that you will hear my heart. Transforming our thoughts to line up with God's truth can be painful, just as all growth typically involves pain. My, my oldest daughter has been having growing pains lately. Just ask her. She'll tell you. It hurts. Uh, but she doesn't want to remain her size the rest of her life. She wants to grow. Um, it's the same thing for sanctification. The, the growing fruit, having your mind transformed to line up with God's word can, can be painful. It is a process. It's work, right? Uh, but the benefits, the, the blessing of rightly doing that are massive. And that's why I want to look at these and hopefully stir in your mind some thoughts and and some uh, things to address. I have been personally so blessed to have thousands of unbiblical thoughts be transformed by the Word of God. And so I hope, until he calls me home, to continue being transformed and falling more and more in line with his Word, which is truth. This is for our good believers And it is clearly commanded for us here in Scripture. So uh, what I want to do is lay out for your consideration some common uh, worldviews that don't line up with Scripture and and that often Christians hold on to. Uh, And I want to take these views and apply them to Scripture and see what God declares about them. Over the last uh, month, and maybe even a little bit more, I've had a few conversations with my daughters. Uh, And one of the questions that has come up is, well, why can't girls be an elder? Daddy, why can't I be an elder? Now, as I was packing, unpacking this with my youngest, uh, it, it caused me to consider the roles that God has clearly defined for men and women and uh, what he says in his word about them, what he says about us as men and women, and what he says about the roles he has created for us. I, I realized that a lot of Christians really struggle to see the beauty of these roles laid out in his word. Church, God declares that he made men and women in his image. We are image bearers, and therefore we are created with the same dignity and worth that is only found in the reality that we have been created in God's image. That is where our value and our worth come from. However, I know for many women, and my girls included in this, the idea that God made us for specific roles and that somehow uh, the roles define our value is a real struggle. And it is primarily influenced by the thoughts of the world around us. So uh, imagine in in the mind of my seven-year-old that the process goes like this. Dad is being considered for something that seems very important, And indeed it is. If this important thing is something that I can't be considered for, then I must not be important. Are you tracking with that, church? Well, apply that to any role that God defines for men and women in Scripture. Men, you are not more important because God has called you to be the head of your home. Women, you are not less important because God has called you to be the helper in your marriage. If any Christian holds that view, then I plead with you to take it to Scripture and to have your thoughts transformed by the Word of God. Why do we think of these different roles as more or less important? They are complementary They do not affect our inherent value because they are different roles. Your value is not given you by the role God created you for. Your value is given to you because God made you in his image. That's where your value comes from. 
And I would submit to you that this misunderstanding is due to our thoughts being conformed to this world rather than to God's word. God's word does most certainly declare that he made woman as a helper fit for the man that he created. However, it does not declare that the woman is therefore of lesser value if she is not, sorry, she is an equal image bearer of God. Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 2.18 Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. We see clearly in these verses that man and woman are equal image bearers of God. We were created in God's image. This is where we find our dignity, our value, and our worth. However, we also see that God created us for unique and specific roles. Think back to what Romans 11 declares. The, de- the creator of all things has decided these roles, and he is perfect in his creation, in his judgments, and in his ways. God's judgments are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. So Christian, when we begin to think that not being permitted to perform a specific role like that of elder or pastor means we are of lesser value, this is not a biblical worldview. One of the greatest moments in my life was watching my daughters be born. I can't do that. God did not create me for that role. That doesn't change my value. That doesn't make my wife more important or me more important. Does that make sense? You see, we must take our thoughts like this to God's word, and we must see what God declares about these things. Christ died for men and women. God created men and women as image bearers of him. Our value and worth are wrapped up in those things, not in what God declares we are to do. God has clearly commanded men and women to carry out different roles. When we agree with the world that those roles change our value and worth, then we join the world around us in our rebellion against the Creator. It is an act of rebellion to tell the Creator that He has somehow messed this up and it shouldn't be like this. The Creator knows why He created us. He knows the way that He created us, and therefore He is the one who decides how we are to live and the roles that he has created us for. Now, I, I really want to push this in just a little bit more. I, I want you to go a little deeper in your consideration of what I'm saying. We should not just be okay with the specific roles that God has created for us to live in and to carry out. Right, here's what I mean. If you're hearing these words from Scripture and you're designed to, desiring to transform your mind to line up with God's word, but the way that your mind is processing that is you're going, well, okay, fine. So God gave a specific role, okay, fine, then that's what I'll do. If, if that's the way you're thinking about it, then you're missing the point. Christian, you're missing the point. God designed these roles that he established for our good. We flourish and find joy by carrying out the role that God created us for. This goes for men and for women. When we live out our life pursuing what God has called us to pursue and fulfilling the roles that God had created us specifically to fulfill, then we find joy like we have never known. This is where we must put away the lies of the world, change our thoughts that are conforming to what the world declares, and line our thoughts back up with what God says is truth. 
Let me say it this way. Ladies, who told you that being the helper means you're less valuable? Who taught you that word equals less value? Who taught my daughter that if she can't be an elder, she's not as important? God doesn't declare that. You won't find that in Scripture. Search as you may. My prayer for you is that as you strive to align your thoughts and beliefs with God's, you put away those lies and you find a renewed joy in God's good design for mankind. He is a good God. The world says if women aren't allowed to do the very same things that men are doing, then there's some sort of loss of value in the person, or perhaps a popular buzzword is there's an inequality, right? We are seeing this play out in the travesty that our country is even considering making the military draft mandatory to apply to our daughters. God save the country that has so fallen from obeying him that they would make their girls sign up to fight their battles. That's unbiblical, church. How dare we send our daughters to fight? There is nothing good in that church. And if you're struggling to hear that, then I'm pleading with you, go to God's word and see what he declares about such things. God declares in Scripture that there is beauty and joy in the role of a wife caring for her kids, helping her husband to fulfill the things that God has called him to do, and that this is for her good. So sisters in Christ, do you believe that to be true? If not, then hear Paul's plea for your sanctification Do not be conformed to this world. Don't buy its lies, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Take those thoughts to God's word. See what he says about you, and then replace the world's view with God's view. Men, what about the things that God has called us to? Men, do you think that because you have been called to be the provider and protector that you are somehow of more value to God? Again, if you, if you think you are more valuable because God has given you a role of leadership, then you are missing what God has declared about these roles. God commanding men to steward all things as the head of his home is a great and joyous calling from God to us men. However, It is not an easy calling. It is not, as the world would call, a glorifying role. It does not mean that we are of greater worth to God. It does not mean that we get to kind of sit on our throne and shout out the commands and make sure that the people are obeying. Men, you have been clearly commanded to provide for your family and especially those of your household. We see this in 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Those are some very harsh words for the role that God has created men to fulfill. Don't miss the fullness of this men. We are called specifically in this passage to provide financially or or through the necessary provisions of life, home, food, etc. But this goes much deeper than just physical provision. If we do not lead our families in their sanctification, in their growth, in their knowledge and love of God, then we are not providing them the deepest need that they have. My daughters need salvation far more than they need their next lunch. This means that as men, we are being called to be lion-hearted, to protect, to provide, and lamb-like, to shepherd and to steward. We must fearlessly protect and gently engage and pursue the family God has entrusted to us. Men, you have the right to go to bed completely wiped out 
more tired than the rest of your family. Because when your day job is over, your time to pour into your family has just begun. God declares that we are to be this kind of provider. And if you're doing this and you're tired, God promises that he will be sufficient for you. Trust him. Church, I hope you're beginning to consider multiple different ways how perhaps you may have had some deeply held beliefs that do not line up with scripture. And I I just want to say this, be encouraged that the same thing was happening in Paul's day, right? This is why he makes this plea to the church in Rome. It was a blessing to them and it is a blessing to us still today. Now, there are many more areas that are worth your consideration, Christian. And I want to just list a few because, again, I want to help you consider these more. Take, for example, Christian accountability. Maybe you've heard the word judgment. That, That might help you think about what I'm talking through. This is largely misunderstood by believers. God commands us as believers to admonish or to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. But no doubt, if you have been a Christian for long, you have heard some other person professing Christ say, you can't judge me. Well, how else are we to exhort our brothers and sisters in Christ? Hebrews 3.13, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We know the text is addressing sin in somebody else, and it's commanding us as believers to exhort one another when there is sin, right? This means that we have to make a judgment about what we are seeing happening. We have to decide if we believe that is sin or not. We have to look at the way someone is living and at their profession and see if those two things line up. And church, don't miss the point of God commanding this for us. Don't, it, you'll utterly ruin this if you miss this point. We do this to help keep fellow brothers and sisters of Christ from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It is for our good, church. It is for your good. When your brother comes to you and he's concerned about something, it's because he loves you and it's for your good. And if that's not the reason you're going, then stop. Refocus your mind and your heart. Ask God to help you clear that up before you go to your brother. But confront us. Confront each other. Out of love for each other. Help us to grow. Help keep us from sin. We're in a battle together. A real one that's raging all day long. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ for this. If we love one another, we will do this even though it can be uncomfortable and difficult. Now, this passage will also address this false idea that as long as I am saved, I, I can really do life on my own. I'm good with Christ now, and so I got my Bible, and I got my cabin in the woods, and I'm good. And I don't need anybody else. Well, you can't really obey God's command here if that's what you're thinking, right? Christian, if no one is permitted to speak into your life, then you are not living according to God's word. Think about this. If I am called to exhort fellow believers every day, as long as it is called today, then I am also likewise called to hear or receive exhortation or admonishment from fellow believers every day, as long as it is called today. There's two sides of that coin, and they both apply to us in Christ, right? That's for our good, church, to protect us from the deceitfulness of sin. Personally, I have never known more growth and sanctification in my life than when God had simultaneously softened my heart to receive brotherly admonishment and strengthened the heart of the admonisher to come to me out of love to point out something they were concerned about. And what I want is for you to know the beauty of this as well. To be clear, Scripture does call believers to practice this accountability, this judgment. We are not called to judge the world outside of the faith, but we are called to judge fellow believers. 1 Corinthians 5 lays this out for us. 
we are also called specifically to do this in a way that is not hypocritical. As I said earlier, if your desire is not your love for your brother or sister, then pause, go to God in prayer, recenter that desire, and then lovingly exhort them. We cannot pull, uh, sorry, we cannot point out the speck in our brother's eye when we've got a log blocking our vision, right? So Christ commands us in Matthew 7 not to judge that way. Church, godly transformation happens when we take our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, and we lay them over and against what God's word declares about them. In this, we must be careful not to read scripture through our own lens. We can't make scripture say what we want it to say. That's transforming God's word to match our thoughts, not transforming our mind to match his truth. Do you see the difference? Now, I bring that up because we are commanded to do life with one another. It can be very difficult sometimes to rightly see what God declares in his word. If you are not sitting under the shepherds preaching, if you are not being discipled by others, if you are not leaning into other mature believers who have learned something perhaps that you haven't, it's the only way I've grown in my life is by learning from other men who have learned more than I have. And so we need to do this well. That's why doing life with other believers is so important. That's why being regularly a part of the church body is so important. When we are not in line with God's word, we must see that it is not God who is wrong, but it is our false beliefs or feelings. So take these things to God's word and replace them with God's truth, church. So I told you that I wanted to unpack what our spiritual worship is, namely our devoting of our life to grow in sanctification and Christ-likeness. This is what it means to be a living sacrifice. Then I wanted to show you practically how godly transformation takes place. We see God's truth in his word, and when our thoughts, beliefs, feelings, actions don't line up with truth, with what God has declared in his scripture, then we take up God's word as true and right, and we put away our thoughts and our falsely held beliefs. Again, I want to come back to this. All of that is rooted in the mercies of God, as Paul encouraged us in verse 1. When we live this way, it is a blessing to us. It is a blessing to other believers, and it is acceptable or pleasing to God. I want to wrap up our time by going back to a passage that I touched on in our first point, and I want us to see just a little bit bigger of a picture of what Christ is declaring here. Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 49. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. I just like saying bramble bush. It's fun. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil of his heart, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Church, Christ is telling us that when we build our lives on his word and when we do not just hear, it's for our good. It protects us in the storm. We cannot call Christ Lord, but ignore his word and his commands. If we have been saved by God, then we must go to his word. We must study it. We must be transformed by it. And this is what it means to build our house on the rock. Church, this is a necessary truth for our current day and age. The storms may be coming. 
Will you stand on the rock-solid word of God? It will be for your joy, it will be for others' good, and it will be for God's glory. May we be living sacrifices and trust God and his word. Pray with me. Father, we again thank you for our time together this morning, for the beating hearts that you placed in our chest, for the minds that you have given us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work within us to help us root out false beliefs, to put away false views, to see your word and what you have commanded and how you have created things to be as good and beautiful and the joy that you have made them to be for us. May we put off the old self and the old thoughts and the old desires and may we be transformed by the renewing of our minds according to your word, Lord. We are desperate for your work in this, so we plead with you to be at work. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, heart that understands, that loves your word and pursues you. We love you, Lord. It is because of Christ that we can pray.